I grew up in a Catholic family, in a good family, and we were churchgoers. And so um, in my family, we, we didn't, uh, I didn't have like a real personal relationship with God. We didn't read the Bible together. You know, we prayed together occasionally, but, but it wasn't, you know, a, a, our spiritual life wasn't um, a central focus. All of that changed pretty dramatically, um, yes. pretty recently. So tell us about some of the circumstances that have led to, to your change. Yeah, so, so it changed actually um, with, with the ending of my, my marriage. And, and through that, that, that crisis, um, I, I, I was hurting. Um, I was scared, um, I was uh, confused. And through that, I, I came close with my, closer with my sister uh, my sister, who, who is a, a believer, and kind of through that crisis, my heart and, and my mind were open to her, and, um, and she uh, really wanted to help her, her brother, who was going through a painful time. Uh, but she connected me to a community pastor at Fellowship, and I, I, was, I was really, really hurting, um, still trying to, to, to save my marriage. Uh, like, I was hurting. I was open. I was very, very open to... Um, to, to you know, receiving really any help that that, that uh, anyone was going to give me. So, what are the differences you've noticed in your life um, since walking with the Lord? I found myself crying out to God, and and really praying more than I ever have in my life. That realization and that conversation that I have with, with our Lord, with our Father, and um, and that that was something that I realized that I really needed. An, another area what is is through. Reading the Word, um, I'd never really done that in a disciplined way in my life. That was something that was, you know, definitely changing my life. All of those things were kind of raising my curiosity and and, and also my 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 hunger and thirst for for that that knowledge. And so so that was that was definitely a change. Has it been processing God's Word in community? That that's been really like the element that that was missing really community with other believers. Um, and the thing that really struck me at first was people's authenticity. And, you know, I, I could tell that they really, really cared about me and, and that I wasn't alone, that, that others had had similar, I can't tell you how many people who had similar stories as mine. Um, and that really kind of reinforced that Jesus can be a powerful change in people's lives. I still struggle with, with hurt, with loss, with grief. Um, I struggle with sin also. I, I, think, I think now I have people that I can live life with and I can talk about it. I pray for them and they pray for me. I'm seeking out knowledge, right? I mean, I really, I'm thankful for mentorship and, 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 and people living life together. I mean, that's, that's who we are. And so uh, I think that that is, has been, you know, comfort and, and help and uh, and really I'm I'm still a child <laughs> through, through my renewed faith um, and and you know have become more curious about uh, about uh, deepening that knowledge and so um, it's gonna be my story for the rest of my life well what a beautiful story of life change of life changing. Uh, as it always will with Christ. It should just get better and deeper. Uh, and so 
Man, grateful for that story. Hey, as we begin to worship together this morning, let's stand. And I want to read from um, Psalm 95 as our call to worship. Um, And this is the message version. So Eugene Peterson, he gets a little crazy sometimes with his his, uh, phrases. And so if there's something cheesy, just roll with it. Um, But it actually helps bring it alive sometimes. So listen to the word of the Lord from Psalm 95. Come, let's shout praises to God this morning. Raise the roof for the rock who saved us. Let's march right into his presence, singing praises, lifting the rafters with our hymns. Are you ready, church? That's this morning. But why? Because God's the best. He's the high king over all the little G gods, which that's all other gods other than him. In one hand, he holds the deep caves and caverns. In the other hand, he grasps the high mountains. He made ocean. He owns it. His hands sculpted earth. So come, let us worship. Let's bow down before him. On your knees before God. And that is a perfectly acceptable posture this morning, if you feel so led. Because he made us. Oh yes, he's our God. And we're the people he pastures the flock that he feeds. So come thou fount every blessing and tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never cease. They call for songs of God's praise. Teach me some Sung by flaming tongues of blood and praise the mountain fixed upon Mount of thy redeeming my hope is found. He. 
all please bow your heads and pray with me. Oh Lord, the rocks cry out. Father, I pray that our hearts are crying out to you right now. I pray that the quality of our worship would put a smile on your face. Father, I pray that, Lord, as you define us and redefine us in your image, Lord, through Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit, recenter those treasure centers of our hearts so they align with yours. As we prepare our hearts to give through offering today, would we give with open hands and open hearts? And may it be so sweet to you, Lord. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you guys have a seat and welcome. I'm so glad to be here with you guys worshiping today. Um, my name is Marcia, and I'm on the worship team. Get to hang out with these guys, which is really, really awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Dad. Um, so I've, I just wanted to let you guys know that I know we've all been through this, this Image of God series, and I have loved it. Uh, I've also been challenged by it and been praying that the Lord will do his work in my heart as he wills through the power of his Holy Spirit by the word of God. And, um, and one thing I know is that God is really creative. I mean, if we don't get anything else out of all of this, we have a creative God that has put his image on us. And a few years ago on the Rogers campus, uh, several artists and creatives got together and felt like that God was leading them to form a community of artists. And that's Spectra. Spectra has been our art ministry for several years. And um, in fact, if you are out in the foyer, you can see the art that has been um, created for our last sermon series in Esther and Daniel. And uh, it's not just to create sermon series art, but it is a community of creatives. And on Monday night, tomorrow night, at 6.30 p.m. on the Rogers campus, we'll have a chance to hear from artists who have created uh, works of art for our next series is coming up this summer. And so I hope you'll join us at 6.30. That's in the Training Center Chapel on the back of the Rogers campus. And now Seth and I would like to enjoy, like to invite all, and we will enjoy it, uh, invite all of you who are artists to meet us at 545 before that on the Rogers campus. It's just in a, in a little classroom that's just down from the chapel. And uh, for a meet and greet and a light bite. We'd just love to get to know you. We invite you, whether you've been part of Spectra or not, to join us. So 545, Seth and I, the meet and greet, and 630, everyone's invited to hear about the art for the next series. We would love to connect with our artists. And... Um, we also would love to connect into the word. Notice how I made that segue. So, so let's prepare our hearts. Let's pray for Mark and his beautiful words from uh, Thomas Aquinas. Would you pray these words with me? Please bow your heads. Almighty God, the fountain of all wisdom, enlightened by your Holy Spirit, those who teach and those who learn. Then rejoicing in the knowledge of your truth, we may worship you and serve you from generation to generation. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And we do need the Spirit of God not just to help us uh, 
listen and take in God's word, but also even help us teach it and share it with one another. Uh, when you meet in community groups this evening or through this week, uh, God's spirit is the one who's activating our ears and even activating our hearts and our mouths to impart it even back to, to one another. So, so much confidence we have here. I think that was a little bit of our experience as men at the men's retreat uh, Thursday through Saturday. Uh, just rich time uh, of eating on God's word together and and yes, even eating, and eating, and even, and Kevin Lyles, if you're still in here, my goodness, can you cook. And we were so grateful for the way you and your team served us. We, uh, for the first 13 years of living in Northwest Arkansas, lived on the east side of Rogers, and so one of my uh, uh, habits, is, at least as much as I could pull it off, was to cycle around the Beaver Lake coves, and particularly in the morning when things were super still, super quiet, and the water began to look something like this. I was always captivated by the fact that when the water was so still on those mornings that the reflection and the real almost looked identical. In fact, sometimes you couldn't even see which was the real and which was the reflection because of the harmony in that water. And that is the picture of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in this series that and has been telling us our origin story, the image of God's story that's imprinted on us as men and women, but even imprinted on uh, that relationship, that unique relationship of marriage. We're designed to reflect God and who he is. A man would do that more through the way he initiates and cares, and a woman would reflect God a little more, not solely, but a little more through the way she responds and completes. The image of God gets respect, uh, reflected fully and equally, but distinctly, with some unique masculine and feminine flares. And yet somewhere early in that first man and woman's life, and I don't know when, I'm just going to hunch that it was in the first nine months because there's no children in the picture yet. And so somewhere early in their relationship, things change. A rock is thrown into that lake. The image doesn't go away but it is distorted, and the ripple effects change things. In the scriptures, the rock has a name. It's called sin, and the ripple effects have a name, and it's called the fall. And we pick up the story on the very next verse that we left off with last week, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. The text tells us this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Whoa, time out. When did he come into this story? I mean, the last verse we just read was perfection was, was being radiating back the glory of God perfectly. And it's almost as though the writer in Genesis, Moses, wants us to know that, that the enemy, the serpent, he's been in the story. We just haven't seen him yet. The text continues to say, he said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. I want us to notice here, Adam and Eve's existence they were created and placed in the middle of spiritual conflict. So we need to get rid of our vision that Eden was just this 
honeymoon hideaway, this break from reality. No, Eden was their reality, and Eden itself had spiritual conflict woven into it. When exactly Satan came into the picture, I don't think we know for sure. I have a belief that planet Earth, which in Genesis chapter 1 was called formless and void or, or formless and empty, was a place of chaos and a place of judgment. And that Satan and his fallen angels in Ezekiel 28 were told uh, that they were cast down because Lucifer, the brightest of God's creation, well, he fell in love with his own image and he wanted to be like God. He didn't want to reflect and be an image bearer. He wanted that glory for himself. And in pride, he rebelled and he was cast down with the angelic beings who joined him. I believe Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is God's invasion of glory into rebel territory. That he knows that out of his goodness, the, the universe should be full of his glory. And that no place should be a black hole where glory just gets absorbed. And so he launches an invasion of glory in this place that we call planet Earth. And his goal was to form and fill the earth, which he did in the first six days of creation. And then he gives those tools that he's going to use to launch this invasion of glory. By the way, the tools are called men and women. And as image bearers, they're going to fill and multiply and fill the earth with his glory. That's the noble calling for men and women. The garden is paradise, but it's also spiritual battlefield. There is an enemy of God's glory. And because he's no match for God's glory, he's going to go after the image bearers of God's glory, men and women. If you would have had a paper Bible in your lap, and I know that many of us bring an app or something on a device or a phone, but if you had a paper Bible in your lap, maybe you can do this when you get home. You could open up the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. You could pinch it with your left hand. Then you could flip over to the end of the Bible and open up the last two chapters in the Bible, Revelation chapter 21 and 22, and pinch it with your hand. And what you would have in those four pages is the only description in the Bible of life the way God intended it to be. Life that is filled with righteousness and joy. Life that is filled with a justice that brings shalom or peace a wholeness in these two little fingers. The rest of the story in the middle, this big, long story, it's the messy redemption of God taking what fell and restoring us and restoring the glory back to the order that he created. We live in the middle of the story. Do you know why it seems so messy? Because it is. And it is the process God is using. For Eve, at this point in the temptation, uh, she has a pretty good grasp on God's word. You remember Satan's strategy. By the way, his strategy then is the same strategy today. It's always to question the goodness of God, the plan of God, what God really has said and promised. The temptation you will fall into this week, the temptation that will besiege you this day, will come with the same right hook. Did God really say? Can you trust him? And she has a pretty good grasp on the answer because she says to him, yeah, 
We can eat from any tree, just not this one. In fact, we're not even going to touch it. It's not worth playing with disobedience. And the enemy continues. So far, so good. Eve is standing on God's word. Verse 4. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. I just don't think that's what it sounded like. I think it sounded like this. Ha! He's mocking God. You won't die. And then he says, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The rebel mocks God and the truth of what he's promised, and he does so by calling into question God's goodness. He says, God is holding out on you. He's keeping the best for himself, and you need to seize what you need to seize to make yourself happy and whole. And that is the nature of the temptation we fall into as well. The next verse, verse 6, the story continues. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, secondly, pleasing to the eye, third, also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. Interesting things that she was tempted, three aspects of that fruit. By the way, if you're curious, you can look in the Gospels this week at the temptation of Jesus Christ in the wilderness by Satan. Three times he's tempted, and it's the exact same three strategies with Eve. The difference was he stood on God's promises and word and held to the goodness and the provision of God. But here we see that she eats the fruit, and then she gives some to her husband who was where? With her. Proximity. You see, the first sin happens in the context of this marital role confusion. He who was created to initiate and she who was created to, to respond to him. Instead, she initiates and, and he responds. And sin hits the pond and the ripple effects. Folks, they create a tsunami touches our lives today. Verse 7, notice what happens to this couple. The perfection of their relationship changes. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. First thing this couple does after sin, notice that they hide in fear and in shame. And then when God comes to pursue them, they hide from him in fear and in shame. And these two verses right here explain exactly why relationships are so difficult. If you've ever turned to one another, had a rift with a friend or a roommate or a spouse or a child, and you've thought, why is this so hard? Genesis 3, verse 7 and 8. Intimacy in relationships, it's so exposing. It exposes our shame, it exposes our guilt, and the first thing we want to do is hide from one another. That happens at the vertical level with our relationship with God, and it happens on the horizontal level with our relationship with one another as well. They run, and they try to work out their own sin management solution at this point, and it's to cover the shame with fig leaves of their own making. 
By the way, that might sound awfully primitive to us, but we've been perfecting fig leaf coverings for millennials. We have creative ways to try to cover up and posture and pose in front of each other to keep from seeing the shame and the guilt that we feel over our sin. Notice verse 9, the next line. It continues. But the Lord God called to the man, pause. If you have a paper Bible, you write in the margins right here, grace, grace. Don't let anybody tell you that grace is what is found in the New Testament and law is only what is found in the Old Testament. No, you see grace on the opening scene after the, the sin. The ones who rebelled and broke faith with God, who is the one who moves first to restore relationship? God moves first. And his question is simply, where are you? It's not because God didn't know where Adam was or Eve was. It's because in sin, we don't know where we are when we get lost and clouded. Where are you, he asked. Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, well, well, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, sweetheart, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Notice the tactic to deal with their own shame and guilt. They blame. And we know it because we have used the same tactic as well. See, Adam's asked a pretty direct question. Adam, have you eaten from the tree I said don't eat from? Now, we know that the answer that should come back is first person, singular, pronoun. Should start with the letter I. But instead, he answers it by pointing to the woman and then pointing to God. When God asks the same question of Eve, she doesn't use a first-person singular pronoun, I. She points to the serpent and says, this is what happened. Blame is instinctive to them, and they are minutes after the fall. Folks, they can't even blame this on their family of origin. They can't sit with the therapist and just say, see, the reason that I, I blame so much is the way I saw my parents argue, and then you should have seen my grandparents. And no. They've got a PhD in blame shifting the moment it happens. And we do the same. It's that instinctive. I shared with the first service, I remember the most bizarre episode of this happened in our parenting when our kids were younger. The four of them close, born close together. The boys, uh, it would have been 20 years ago because they were back then 10 and 12. They always shared a room all the way up through the time of, uh, of high school graduation. And we lived in this home in Little Rock where their bedroom was right above, right on top of our dining room. And on a typical Sunday afternoon or Saturday afternoon, the boys would be roughhousing, jumping off their bunk beds, swinging off the bunk beds, whatever. And the, and the chandelier and above the dining room table would swing just a little bit. And you never really cared. Because, I mean, honestly, if you can't have enough fun making a chandelier swing, what's the use of having a chandelier, right? And so we would kind of let it roll and it would just swing a little bit. But then... 
like your kids, the push would come to shove, and then it would become a conflict. And man, you could tell because the chandelier started moving. And one Sunday afternoon, we'd come home and already had lunch after church, and the chandelier went from gently swinging to moving. And Lisa said, you need to get up there. To which I thought, me? I mean, they're scared of you. You should get up there. (laughs) But I kind of did my thing, like I'm going to go up there and somehow fix this. And I mean, it's 13 steps. And at the very top of the steps is their room. And up these 13 steps, my mind is racing. And I said, I'm going to go through the same ridiculous motion I go through every parenting time to resolve conflict. I'm going to walk into their room and say, what's going on here? And I know exactly what they're already going to say. They're going to point to each other and say, he. I'm so tired of that. I'm going to change the rules. So I opened their door and I said, I'm about to ask you a question, but nobody gets to speak yet. I'm about to ask you the question, what's going on here? Don't speak, because they're already like, and I said, you have to answer the question. First by saying, I, and tell me everything you did. And then you can talk about your sibling, what he did. We're going to start calling it the I rule. And we're going to live by the I rule in our home. Got it? I'm going to ask the question. Got to start with I. I read, you're younger. You get to go first. What's going on here? And he goes, he, and I stopped him. I said, no, 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 no. It's got to start with I. And he went, I. And he's angry. He's no longer angry at his brother. He's angry at me. I. He said like three times, I. I was hit by him. (laughs) And I did exactly what you did because it stunned me. I just burst out laughing like no teachable moment. It was just ridiculous. And I started cracking up and I looked at him and I said, that's amazing. Like from one graduate level Pharisee to one like apprentice Pharisee, well done, Padawan. I mean, you kept the law and totally broke the spirit of it at the same time. And I just left the room. I went downstairs and told Lisa, you wouldn't believe what just happened. And she was like, Mark, why did you start with Reed? He came out of the womb as a lawyer. Like that was the fail on the moment. Almost a decade ago, when we turned 50, our kids threw a barbecue for us and we're kind of well, they were really saying nice things about Lisa and roasting me. And uh, they at one point they said, do you remember that lame eye rule dad tried to launch in the household? And they were like, yeah, that was a fail. We're instinctive at shifting the blame. We get sophisticated, but we still have a way of creatively looking like we might be owning something, but pushing it off on the other. We do it when we hear messages in the culture that we don't like. They are so, uh, and that's why I'm, uh, you said, and that's why I, you did, and therefore I, and we don't start first with our own sin and fall. Continues with God speaking next in verse 16. To the woman, God said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the fruit of the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the dust, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Here's what we notice. Clearly, there are some things in the fall that God says that apply to both men and women and all of humanity, right? Death enters the world at this point. We will all die unless Jesus Christ comes for his church and raptures us before that. Clearly, there are other aspects that apply to all of us. The world is broken around us, and it will not work like it was meant to work. But I also notice here that God doesn't only speak Southern as it was. He doesn't just say, hey, to y'all, this is going to be bad. At one point, he actually speaks to Adam, and he speaks to Eve, and he has different kinds of curses. Did you notice that? See, the curses are unique because God's creation of men and women were unique. Let's look at Adam first. For Adam, we already said last week that man, uh, futility would enter his world. That's the curse. Because Adam was created, as we said last week, to to, uh, have this impact in the way he ruled creation and the way he cultivated uh, a garden. And now God promises that his impact, that way of initiating and care that we talked about last week, that that would be blunted, that the world would not work for him well, that his, his calling would be lived out among weeds and thorns, and that every day he would get up and he would pick those weeds and cultivate that garden and feel really pretty good about what he'd done. He'd lay his head on the pillow, he'd get up in the morning and the weeds were back. And every day that would be some of his cycle. The curse matches Adam's created design. Men, we know, were created to reflect God through the way they initiate and care. But at the fall, we see something happen. At the fall, it's the opposite. His leadership is now blunted, thwarted in passivity and dominance. Where do you see passivity in the story? Well, I noticed in that chapter 6, or excuse me, chapter 3, verse 6, story of Adam's fall, Eve eats from the fruit and gives it to her husband who is right there with her. Now don't forget he was hearing the conversation and he heard Satan say, did God really say this? He could have been the one to speak up and actually say, actually, I was there in chapter two. I was the one received the command from God to not eat from that tree. Yes, I can vouch for the fact that he really said this, but he was silent. He did nothing. He had no shoes to stare at during the conflict. He had no car keys to jingle, no cell phone to scroll and look distracted. While the king of hell was assaulting his wife with lies, he who knew the truth directly stood silently and passively. I don't know what he should have done, but he could have done something. I don't know if his leadership and initiative should have been very gentle and he should have just said, hey, honey, before we go forward, let's talk a little bit. Have you noticed no other creatures in the garden have the power of speech? Something bigger than us is going on. Let's talk to God first. He could have done something aggressive and picked his garden hoe up and hacked the snake's head off and then worried about consequences later. But something could have been done, but instead he was passive and silent. Where do you see dominance in his story? Well, in the curse that God gives Eve, 
there's the promise, the foreshadowing. It says that your husband will rule over you. And that word rule is not a, it's not a good word. It's not the same as initiative. It means to be dominant or harsh. You see the opposite. A man who is created to initiate becomes passive. A man who is created to do life-giving care becomes harsh and dominant. When those men begin to leave with pockets of that, men, all of us have pockets of passivity or dominance in our fallen nature. All of us. Chief among sinners here. And if we're not under God's daily leadership, we will live out of that pocket of passivity or dominance and we will reflect the fall rather than our leader, Jesus. Yeah, we'll live like a a dreamer who just doesn't see the weeds, doesn't believe there's problems. My kids are fine, you know. My my marriage is good. You know, after all, my wife does a better job with the kids anyway. Uh, It's all good. And and, and everything's all right here. Just kind of pretending and dreaming away the issues. Or we live like destroyers who see the issues and say, no, no, I'm going to fix this once for all. And we react too harshly. And we come in too strongly. That's the fall. And it's the effects of the fall on a masculine soul, expressed through passivity and dominance. We don't just see that in homes. We see that in the church family as well, don't we? The family of God. For millennium. The biggest challenge in the local church has been to how to capture men's hearts and keep them engaged because passivity just wants to kind of dream it away or move in opposite. One of the great movements that's happened here since we opened a year ago has been the engagement from both men and women. One of the most refreshing things I've ever seen in a local church is to walk through our kids' ministry halls during one of the service and see men and women serving together and initiating together. That movement is the redemption on display. But the pockets of passivity and dominance are there. This weekend in our men's retreat, Chip Jackson talked about the difference between Adam number one and Adam number two. Ironically, he didn't even know the series we were teaching here, and they just paralleled each other. And he kept saying, men, we can either live out of the fallen first Adam, or we can live out of the redemptive power of the second Adam, the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And he gets that from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, where it tells us that the first Adam became a life or a living being. But the second Adam, Jesus Christ, he's a life-giving spirit. And actually, this can be our vision. We can either just exist on the planet as a living being, you know, leave a carbon footprint, go along to get along, manage our life, make it as comfortable as possible for ourselves, or we can live as a life-giving spirit, believing that God assigned each one of us a little slice of the garden. And we get to steward that by initiative and care and see Jesus bring his life in and through us. That's the fall on first Adam. And that's our opportunity. How about for Eve? What effects did the fall have on a woman's soul? Here's what's interesting. As I listen to most Christian teaching, whether it's on marriage or manhood or womanhood, most preachers tend to focus on the sin of men. And in some ways, that's not all bad. Because guys, when we own it, there's a lot to talk about, right? But every good and honest woman that I know, every courageous woman I know, yes, she can look at the men in her life and go, yeah, he can be a real 
son of Adam, you know? But if they're good and honest and courageous, they'll look in their own mirror and say, and I too can be a daughter of Eve. And they own it. But we don't talk too much about that publicly. I think that's crazy unfair and unfortunate. Because number one, I don't think it's honest to women. Women know when they look in, their, in the mirror, I am a work in progress too. And secondly, I really don't think it's honoring to women. I think it approaches women like, uh, we're just not gonna go with what the Bible says specifically in this text to a woman. I'm just not gonna go there either. A, you can't handle the truth, or B, as a preacher, I can't handle the truth in front of you. And there's this, we're just gonna avoid it. But what if we don't do that? What if we actually just read the text knowing it has something for us there? Look at verse 16. There's only one verse to the woman. It's kind of a doozy though. Verse 16 says, to the woman, God said, I will make your pains in, in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. And then he says a second sentence. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So clearly we have pain in childbirth, which is explains not only the pain of bringing a child into this world, but even the pain for so many couples of conceiving and bringing a child to full term. Yeah, there's, that's real, painful for every woman. But that's not where the curse stops. It says your desire will be for your husband. And here, I really want the word desire to mean what I want it to mean. I want to read this text and believe that it means, Mark, Lisa will always be warm for your form. Okay? The problem is that just wouldn't be good exegesis. Because what it really means is, Mark, she'll be hot after your job. Because the word desire here actually means to consume or absorb, literally, to control. Kylan Delich, uh, from a couple of generations, many generations ago, Another century, Old Testament scholars translate the word overtake. In fact, that's what causes our friends down at Dallas Theological Seminary to translate the New English translation by the phrase, you will want to overtake your husband. That's the word desire. How do we know that? How are we not just making that up with some agenda? Because the next time you see the word is one chapter later, actually just a few verses later, and it comes up again with Cain and Abel as Cain is enraged with jealousy over Abel. And God steps into his life and says, oh, my son, sin's desire is for you. It wants to overtake you, but you must master it. You must rule it. See, we see a competition set up in the first marriage. Some might even say a competition set up between the sexes, the gender, if you want to extend it that far where man has this tendency towards passivity and dominance out of his created order. But a woman then has a tendency towards control and independence. Where do you see control in the story? Well, first let's start with independence. Where do we see it? Actually in the temptation of itself, right? Did God say, instead of turning in partnership to her husband to answer this question, she moved independently from him. She then ended up after the sin happened and hid herself from him. But then you see control come up in the actual curse that God puts there. Your desire will be for your husband. You will want his leadership. And just like men have pockets of passivity and dominance we can live out of in our fallen nature, a woman has pockets of control and independence. 
Is that the same thing as saying all women are controlling? Absolutely not. That's such an unhelpful overgeneralization. It's not even worth talking about. But whether those pockets for you women are larger or smaller, you know the battle inside your heart. It comes up in humorous art forms occasionally. Like in the early 2000s when the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding came out. Lisa bought that on DVD and forced our children to watch it almost every Friday night. And the scene she loved the most was when the mother is walking down the sidewalk with her adult daughter. And she says, let me tell you something, Tula. The man may be the head, but the woman is the neck. And she can turn the man any way she wants. It was art reflecting the truth of life in Genesis 3.16. It was about 25 years ago that in my own personal study, I was developing some of this stuff on Genesis 1 through 3 and comparing it to New Testament, the story of redemption later. And I was just doing a lot of personal writing, personal study and journaling. And a friend of mine told his wife about it. And she was part of a larger church in town. And she told her, the leader of her women's study, and I got a call asking, would you come and teach this to about 250 women at Fellowship Little Rock on, on a morning? And I think I squeaked in my best going through puberty voice, yes, you know. Uh, and Lisa said, are you nervous? I said, no, I'm terrified, I'm terrified. And I go and do this presentation, and while they're kind of discussing it, I bolt to the parking lot and go back to my job. And finish my day, and at the end of the day, there's a voicemail waiting for me. And there's a sweet southern voice on the voicemail that says, Mark, you don't know me, but I was at the presentation this morning. I have a couple of questions. I wonder if you could give me a call. So I'm going to do this today before I get home, start dinner. And I pick up the phone, call her back, and she said, I just want you to know what an encouraging blessing it was for you to be with us and what a blessing. And now, listen, if you live deeper south, when somebody keeps using the word blessing, something's coming, okay? And it doesn't feel like a blessing. So I'm feeling already set up, probably my own issues, Right? But then she said, I just need you to know, our pastors taught us to not build a whole doctrine off of one word. Now, since I know her pastor, I said, as a wise pastor, you should never do that. And she said, so I don't see how control can come from the word desire. I can see how passivity is there for men, but I don't see control in this curse to Eve. And I said, okay, what do you think the curse is with Eve? And she said, pain and childbearing. And I said, absolutely. It's in the text. It's in real life. But it seems to me that all a woman has to do is choose to not have children, and you've kind of outworked God on the curse then. And plus, it doesn't really deal with the whole curse. It only does half the verse. What, what does desire then mean? And she said, I don't know. I just know it's not a curse. And it probably means that I will always be attracted to my husband. Now, I was thinking, I've never seen your husband, but I didn't say that. Instead, I just said, how can that be a curse to always be attracted to your husband? And she said, I don't know. I just know it cannot be controlled. And I said, okay, thanks for the phone call. We hung up, the awkward ending of the conversation. And I sat there and thought, what just happened? For 12 minutes, I was just being controlled by a woman who did not see control as the issue in Genesis 3.16. 
And we have to own the cycle. I uh, cannot tell you um, if a passive man produces, a, particularly a passive husband, produces a, a, a woman who struggles with control or whether a, a controlling wife produces a passive man. I know when we have those kind of discussions, we're just stuck in a vicious cycle. When Lisa and I are at our worst, we're just debating whose sin came first, the chicken or the egg. Let's just own that there's a chicken and the egg in the relationship, and everybody own their part. I've got to own my part, and she has to own her part if we're going to have any hope to break out of that kind of cycle. This can happen with close friends or roommates or work relationships. It clearly shows up as well in romantic relationships and in marriage. And we think if they just change, then I'd be okay. That's the vicious cycle. How do we go from a vicious cycle to a life cycle? And that's the beauty of the gospel. Because in the New Testament, redemption happens because Redeemer has come. He dies on a cross and pays for sin. He gives us his spirit. And every command that happens for husband and wife in marriage, happens after the coming of the Savior and the coming of the Spirit, and then we get different kinds of commands. You remember back in November, if you were with us back in November when we walked through Ephesians paragraph by paragraph, we looked at Ephesians chapter five and this gospel-centered marriage. And there we saw that a husband's call was to love and lead his wife, and a wife's call was to follow and respect her husband, And we saw that rather than ranking order and who's more important and all of that kind of nonsense discussion, we saw that the gospel-centered marriage was one where he begins to love and lead and sacrifice for her and she begins to follow and respect him. And this thing is a beautiful life cycle. But you know what I notice? These New Testament commands have a backdrop, an origin story. And it's the Garden of Eden. Is it just me or do the bottom circles look a awful lot like opposites of the fallen circle, where love and lead is the opposite of passive or dominant, and follow and respect is the opposite of that sense of control and independence. And if that's not good enough news, it just gets better, because not only are the opposite of the fall, they take us back to a created order, where love and lead, it looks an awful lot like a man's calling to initiate and care in his world, and Follow and respect is how she begins to respond and to complete. God wants his image bearers back. And he came to great lengths to come get us. Which is why we find ourselves, when we gather as believers, making sure that the only hero we talk about, sing about, speak about, learn about, become captivated about is the second Adam. Jesus is that much to us. And we do things like when we gather as a church, we celebrate and remember him in ways that he taught us to. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It was that time that he picked up bread and broke it. So every time we pass the bread, it comes in broken pieces, reminding us of his broken body. And when we pass the cup, it reminds us of our shed blood. And it's not just the thing we tack on to the end of a worship service. No, it is our way of remembering the hero who came to get us and restore us back to his image. Just think about the word remembering him. Jesus said, every time you eat and drink, you remember me. We remember him because he is remembering us. 
He remembers, reattaches us back to the Father through faith in him. He remembers us, reattaches us back to each other. He reattaches us, remembers us back even to our created design. And so the ushers will serve us communion and we will hold those elements till everybody's been served and remember the Lord Jesus together. Hebrews chapter one, verse three. The sun is the radiance of his glory, the representation of his essence. Jesus is the perfect image of God. He sustains all things by his word. So when he had accomplished cleansing for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high.
Paul tells us that the second Adam, Jesus Christ, came as a life-giving spirit. Second Adam and that he was the perfect man, perfect human. He came and showed an initiative and care that was self-sacrificing. He came and showed a, a responding and a completing in the way that he responds to the Father's will and completes the Father's desire for salvation. Yeah, he was a life-giving spirit full essence of perfect God-man. And his life-giving came through life-sacrificing, which is why we honor and worship him the way we do. We remember him because he has remembered us back to the Father. We eat and drink in his honor. And let's sing together this closing prayer that we've been singing through this series. It's a benediction. Holy Trinity, three in one perfect love, show us how to Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This Thursday is National Day of Prayer, and uh, if you can join us and are able to at this time, uh, we will pray together, and our prayer team will lead us from 9 a.m. to 10.30 in the uh, great room above the offices. If you can't, maybe set a prompt on your phone to pray that morning, pray at noon, in the afternoon, whatever's best for you to join in and just interceding for our cities and our nation. Likewise, when we talk about prayer, we have Phil and Judy right up front, and they would love to not just pray for you, but, but with you. And if we can do that, would you simply come up and say hello?